This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff for you to talk about in this episode include... Running Adventures. Ken in Brazil. Late 90s SF films. And the King Invasion of Joseon. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here on the gaming hut table, we have some pamphlets, we have some stapled booklets, we have maybe some books, we've got a, a box set or two, Robin, even a slipcase, because today we're looking at pre-written scenarios at the behest of beloved Patreon backer David Rourke, who asks, I have been running games since before editions were much of a thing. One of the things I've never been able to do is run someone else's pre-written scenario. I've tried, but no matter how much I study or diagram, I just can't keep an adventure designed by someone else in my head. I do fine with my own much looser notes and ad hoc GMing style. Since you write these things professionally, do you think I'm missing something? Am I prepping wrong? Would I be a better GM overall if I learned how to do this? Or should I just keep running my own stuff and not worry about it? Not to speak for both Robin and Ken. I guess I do that all the time. But um, yeah, don't worry about it. If you're having fun, David Rourke, you're doing it right. That's literally the only criterion. I guess if your players are having fun and you're having fun. But that was the plural you. Right. You got it. So now that you've answered that question correctly, obviously. Right. We can move on. Let's spend the next 14 minutes explaining why David still needs to buy our adventures, even though he doesn't run them. Oh, but right. in yeah. more detail, there are many different kinds of game masters. But one of the chief divides between them are the ones who run a sort of a loosey-goosey style with minimal prep and others who need the support of a detailed published scenario. And one not-so-secret trade secret is that many designers 
including our departed friend Greg Stafford and including me and including you, Ken, are more improv GMs when we run. And what we're mm -hmm. trying to do when we create a scenario is lay out for people how to do what it is that we do when we're improving at the table. Just something like writing a juggling manual, I assume. <laughs> it is. Just the way that, you know, Hamlet's Hit Points, the idea behind that book is, you know, in previous books of GM advice, I would just say, well, do what's narratively interesting. And then it turns out that a lot of people is like, well, what is that? <laughs> what is narrative interest? And so I wrote a whole book to break it down and with little symbols and icons and, you know, up arrows and down arrows to break down exactly how that works. And I would think that even a GM who improvises heavily needs scenarios not to try to run them and replicate that experience, but to see what it is that you're trying to improv toward. Because a classic dungeon in D&D and other F20 games, it's sort of the brilliance of that structure is it takes care of itself. It doesn't really have much of a structure other than there's a bunch of rooms together and cool things happening. All of the rooms or most of the rooms at any rate, whereas other genres require more story, whether that's the story of a mystery game like Call of Cthulhu. And Ken, I think we both have the experience of needing to see what a Call of Cthulhu adventure looked like and what its structure was in order to improv it. And I actually ran some of those early adventures. I bet you did too. And then we Absolutely. went from there into improving our own. But I needed to see what it was supposed to be like, that just the rule set itself didn't explain what the structure was. So I think the number one thing that people who run improvisationally can take from scenarios is imagine this being played that's the experience you're shooting for. And it's different from game to game. Yeah. And it's different sort of in stages. I ran those first bunch of uh, scenarios from the book basically as written. And then I started to sort of add my own bits to some of them. So if you go to my copy of Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, you'll see little notes in green where I've added different bad guys and changed things around because locations were slightly different, but I was still running basically the scenario. And then as we get deeper and deeper into my understanding of Call of Cthulhu and also the other game designers understanding of Call of Cthulhu, because some of those early scenarios were dungeons, but with Sothagua, which is not bad, and in fact can be a terrific way to play, but it is not the paradigmatic Call of Cthulhu game. It's insufficiently explanatory, for right, sure. Right, yes. It, it points you in a fun direction, but sadly not the direction the rest of the game is pointing you towards. And as I got more familiar with it, you see more and more green ink spreading across the pages of my early Call of Cthulhu scenario books until by the time you get to say Spawn of Azathoth, there's whole you know, pages of, of different notes stuffed in and little hand sketched Tibetan lamaseries that I think would be cool and new stuff. And I basically ran that as, well, the book says we're going to Tibet. So let's go to Tibet. I'll use those clues and other ones that I come up with on the fly. And then once they get to Tibet, we'll do things that I already know will resonate with my players and with their characters and will fit my ongoing campaign and build towards the sort of climax that I'm aiming my campaign toward, ideally. Some campaigns you can't even aim things, but in a more narratively structured one, sometimes you can. And so from there to Dracula Dossier, I suppose you can say is maybe not a straight line, but is a clear line. Right. And so the only thing I think that's unusual about David's situation is that he leapt right away into improv and didn't go through that preliminary thing of, uh, well, this is you know, this is what a traveler adventure is supposed to be mm -hmm. like. And, uh, okay, obviously there's, you know, the, if you read a bunch of, 
you know, travel adventures. Okay, it looks like there's you're supposed to go to the planet for a little while, and maybe there's a chance of a space combat, and I bet there's some trading involved, and you sort of see what the elements are in, in a default uh, game. I, I would think, though, that today more people are able to go straight to improv without the step of having to take apart and reassemble a written scenario in order to run it by watching or listening to actual play. Yeah. And that possibly gives you a better model. That's an interesting question of, you know, how far back through the line do you go of influence before you find a GM on whom all the other GMs base their style who actually ran a pre-written <laughs> adventure? A pre-written adventure. Yeah. I mean, I think that with the recent boom in third edition and Pathfinder, Pathfinder, I know, has a ton of scenarios there. And when I was running 13th Age, because I was deliberately trying for the sort of old F20 feel, I ran a lot more pre-programmed scenarios, although I still ran them with lots of improv and weirdness. But it was very much like going back to my own early days as a GM. Pelgrain has the little encounter books and then... I repurposed a Pathfinder scenario and a D&D scenario and a Dragonlance scenario. And so a lot of that was, you know, sort of rediscovering the joys of being surprised or being constrained narratively and creatively to say, well, there are going to be some bugbears in this next room. I know that's going to happen. Now, how do I, you know, make it fun and interesting because everyone in my group has killed, you know, a lot of bugbears. Let's just, they're all up on the bugbear post office wall. Let's put it that way. And there certainly is an appeal for players, although not one that David or anyone else has to pitch to, mm-hmm. to play well-known scenarios so that yeah. you can say, I've been through Master of Narlathotep or, you know, yeah, we got, we touched the thing in the Tomb of Horrors and, you know, it was Jake who got wiped out in our group or what you have in conventions where part of the fun is that someone will supply a pre-written adventure, which implies that a lot of GMs want someone to do that work for them, that they don't want to just, you know, sit down at a convention and, you know, do it off the top of their head. And again, part of the fun of that is that people can then compare notes, but not every GM has to deliver every type of fun for people. And I'm sure someone in David's group, if they do want to play a classic scenario, they might uh, find another GM to do that and let David play for once. Let David play. Yeah. Come on, people. What's wrong with you? I, I found that when I was running scenarios, pre-programmed scenarios, usually ones that I'd written at conventions, the fun for me was seeing how different game groups screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> that there was never I, I, the... I thought the rest of that sentence would be, came up with different solutions, but no. <laughs> I literally believe I just said that, Robin. But yeah, the... Uh, and that sort of, you know, point of stability in a wildly creative world to sort of flip it on its head is also, I don't know that, you know, I certainly am not going to conventions and running scenarios anymore. I've had that fun, but it was genuinely interesting to see happen. And I feel like that's some of that common narrative tradition that you can have by yourself if you're the only GM who's run this scenario, but you've run it six or seven or eight times, you have a real depth of understanding of how narratives deform that you didn't have previously as a GM. So again, that may or may not make your table better, but I think it'll give you a, you know, a golf club. You know, if you're a golfer who never needs a nine iron, great. But if you need a nine iron, all of a sudden it's nice to have it in your, in your bag, I guess. And I've certainly spoken to lots of people who, you know, say for whatever game line it is, I need more scenarios. I'm not a scenario writer. I mm-hmm. can't improvise well. You know, they're just as flummoxed by having to do something on the fly as David is by 
trying to fit a pre-written scenario, and they uh, need them. And for some games, that's a challenge because outside of the mystery realm, where buying scenarios is much more common, the secret is that adventures traditionally don't sell all that well, and you have mm-hmm. to have pretty giant sales for your core game, if it's not a mystery, in order to sell enough adventures to make it worthwhile, which is why you know Pathfinder is able to have a ton of adventures because they have a giant player base and therefore a giant DM base. And also the other sort of adventures that sell besides mysteries is dungeons. I mean, I think that goes back to the beginning of the hobby and it's still strong. And if you make a really good dungeon, the, the OSR has demonstrated that with their, you know, various takes on the mega dungeon on the dungeon world and all kinds of other things to do with dungeons. Well, it has I to feel be a like, super duper amazing, stunning dungeon right. to sell because the whole point of a dungeon, the thing that's good about it is that people can but, make it. But they do own. keep selling Robin. If, if you look at it over time. So it, again, you can make it yourself. You don't have to make it yourself. Frozen meals continue to sell Robin. That's all I'm telling you. Yeah. Speaking of selling, we did promise to tell David why he still needs to buy adventures. And of course, the answer there is so that you can strip them for parts. Right. So that you don't try to actually, you know, run this particular adventure, but you do take all of the uh, game master characters and set them in a pile and have your notes as to who they are so that when you need a experimenter or a uh, coroner or a flapper or whatever it is that you need, you just, you know, reach into your pile and there you have them with their stats or you know, here's the map of the haunted house and maybe they'll go to a haunted house. Maybe they won't, you won't get them there the same way that the published adventure does, but there is a haunted house and you have all its rooms. You can use as much or as little of it as you want. Or there's a narrative conceit of a showdown, a a moment, a a bit. And you think, well, I'm never going to run this scenario, but now I have this as a, as a thing to try when it organically comes up in my own table. Uh, I've run lots of stuff with the structure of the old Radon Innsmouth scenario. I've never run the Radon Innsmouth scenario, but I've run lots of not enough games, frankly, with that structure because it's an amazingly good one. And I never would have run across it at all. I never would have come up with it if I hadn't uh, read that scenario by Kevin Ross and I suspect Keith Herber. And it's uh, it's a wonderful structure. And that's the sort of thing that you can get from sort of reading, even not playing, the best of the best stuff. Right. Uh, well, I think we've uh, well summarized it. And we've uh, pitched for uh, buying our scenarios uh, once again, and therefore we can uh, see what awaits us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling 
rolling fog. Goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria. And finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in Boundary Waters. And my L.A. hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills. Takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in High Voltage Kill. And finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store. Or at the Pelgrane Press web store. It's time for us to issue a travel advisory. This, of course, is what happens when one of us, in this case Ken, hence my doing the introduction, goes somewhere interesting, sometimes with a game convention, sometimes without. But this one was very much with Ken because you recently attended the Diversão Offline Convention in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And the internet uh, tells me that Diversão just means fun. Yep. So you... Did you have fun offline in Brazil, Ken? I, I had fun offline. I had fun offline. I had fun at the convention. I had fun outside the convention, although less of that because it was a game convention, and that means you're in the convention basically all day. But yeah. And so how, how big a convention, and was it the familiar formula we all know? It was very familiar. It was eerily familiar, in fact. It's about a 9,000-person convention up from 7,000 last year. They expect to keep growing now that they're in Sao Paulo, which is, to my surprise, a city of 30 million people. So they have lots of room to expand. And it was very much, there was, you know, gaming, there were, there was a big dealer's room where obviously I was spending most of my time because I was doing autographs at uh, the three publishers of my games in Brazil. There was an indie alley where Brazil's great game designers have great new games that I sadly cannot read. But I, even then, I, I managed to pick up a couple of them just because they were so amazing looking. There was a whole section of, of proto-spiel where you did designs and played for interested people, which I think is a terrific thing to see in any game convention. And in something like Brazil's main game convention, that's even better. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a regular game convention, just like a you know, a, a, a Sigma more uh, attractive because it was Brazilians, uh, not Americans. But yeah, other than that, it was very eerily, strangely, weirdly normal as a, as an experience to be going, you know, to a whole nother hemisphere. And then once more, I'm at, you know, a, a fun game convention. And did you do a, a panel? And if so, were you being translated or did enough people know English to get your jokes the first time around? I was doing not a panel, but a, a speech or a presentation. The topic was me. So I appreciated that a great deal. You were able to do your research on that one ahead of time. I was, I was able to swat up on the plane down. And so it was fun. Uh, I had a translator, a, a very good translator. For, for all and you he know. says, do you talk, <laughs> do you talk in long sentences or short sentences? And I said, well, I kind of talk in long sentences. And he says, well, then the translation's going to get pretty loose. <laughs> and I said, all right, fair enough. He said, I and, talk in paragraphs. Get out your notebook. So it, it was, it was fun to do a, a, like a joke or a bit and, 
half the audience or a third of the audience laughs and then he translates it and this is how i know he was a good translator the other half laughed Robin. Oh, there you go yeah you need a translator who can do your bits that's right the, that's the key and i did interviews for a bunch of brazilian uh, i guess game youtube channels and things that came up and we and we did the interview it was very much like you know liam neeson is here to talk about his new movie and he talks to like 80 million websites that are all called junkmovie.org or something. And it was like that, except these were all wonderful websites that were good, not bad ones. Right. And so this sounds like something quite familiar, although, you know, with 9,000 people, that makes it, you know, a contender for one of the biggest conventions in the, the Western Hemisphere, doesn't it? Yeah, I was I was telling them that they were uh, well on their way to third and that they could pass Origins in easily if they kept growing at this speed. And I hinted that, and if you kept bringing certain guests back... <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you learn about the Brazilian gaming scene? Is it uh, one of those interesting alternate realities where something other than Dungeons & Dragons started the role-playing boom? Yeah, the first translated role-playing game in Brazil was GURPS, and that sort of set them off doing their own kind of games. They had sort of a, a, a dungeon game fairly early, and then Vampire hit. So GURPS comes in the early to mid 80s and then Vampire hits very early in the 90s, right after Vampire. Talk about your opposite ends of a spectrum. And oh my Lord, Brazil fell in love with Vampire. I I was down there for all of my games, but I was always introduced as the designer of Vampire. And then every now and again, someone would say fifth edition and every every now and again, they'd say lead designer of Vampire fifth edition. But I think I was doing a lot of stolen Mark Reinhagen valor when I was down there, and it was great fun. They loved their vampire. People wanted to tell me that it was the first game they played in high school or whatever. So vampire very much struck a chord down there. Now they have their own sort of big F20 game called Tormenta that I, I saw, you know, boxes and things of. They have a Western game or a Brazilian Western game called Bandarantes that I did not see, but I know exists. And I saw a bunch of other, you know, board games, uh, exciting big box role playing games. The companies that translated me, they had other translated North American and European games, but they also had big Brazilian game labels that they were pushing just as much. Maybe not just as much. They were pretty happy to see me at uh, New Order Editora. So, and and one of the wild things is that the Gumshoe line is split between different uh, licensors, right? Yeah, Editora New Order has Knights Black Agents. Uh, Trail of Cthulhu is at Retropunk, and I did not see whether or not any of the other games. I, I I don't think I saw Yellow King down there at all. It may not have gotten to Portuguese yet, but it was definitely wild to be at two different booths signing different bunches of autographs and also Dafter Ragnarok is at Retropunk, which I didn't even know was in Portuguese. So there we are. But I, I did sign a lot of GURPS books, which I don't always do at a show. And then a lot, a lot of, of Vampire. And that was great fun. Now, did they let you out of the convention hall at all? Did you actually get to see Sao Paulo? Well, on Friday, when I landed, I landed Friday morning, went to the hotel and then from the hotel, we went to the big municipal market, which is like a big enclosed market, like uh, Reading Market in Philadelphia or North Market in Columbus. If you've you know been to those places where there's restaurants and uh, food stalls and uh, guys selling fresh, beautiful tropical fruit. I think that's only in Brazil. And uh, it took three hours to get there from the hotel. So I, I, I have talked to other Paulistas and other people who've been to Sao Paulo and they said, yep, you saw the real Sao Paulo. You were in <laughs> traffic, in traffic. For three hours. Well, you did, you did say 30 million people. Right. And in uh, the uh, market, I had the, the famous fried mortadella sandwich, which is their, one of their claims to fame. Uh, 
in snack fooding and is amazing. Uh, I did not think you could make basically fancy bologna uh, taste that good, but apparently you can. And then on the Monday, which was my last day before my flight, I got to go out and see sort of their main uh, shopping street, their main business street, sort of Michigan Avenue or Fifth Avenue or Champs-Élysées of so Paulo is called Paulista Street, and I uh, went there because there are giant bookstores at either end of it. And, of course, the bookstores, sadly, were all in Portuguese. Well, so there we are. Happily for the people of Sao Paulo. Uh, yes, wonderfully for the people of Sao Paulo, less wonderfully for those of us who do not read Portuguese. So I went to three amazing bookstores and bought one book, Robin. Uh, and then, as if to calm my shattered nerves, my guide, my escort, who was a sommelier at the board game cafe we'd gone to on Sunday. And by the way, Robin, if you would ever like to be mostly ignored, go to a board game cafe in Brazil with Reiner Canizia. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Barely any attention will be paid to you. You can eat your Brazilian fried cheese in peace. But uh, that's actually unfair. Lucy, the proprietor, was very nice to me. And uh, the board game sommelier, Antonio, who I hung out with on Monday, he'd gone to law school, which is why his English was so good. And then he ditched that go-nowhere career for a, a vibrant life as a board game sommelier. So he took me to the hipstery, uh, one of the hipstery neighborhoods of Sao Paulo through this sort of wild Artalzorian game cityscape. And then we wound up drinking Irish coffee made with cachaça at the PPD Cafe, which is the hipstery cafe in Sao Paulo of all hipstery cafes. And PPD apparently is Brazilian for for a fistful of dollars. So that was exciting, too. Well, the only thing I can confirm there uh, that I can personally attest to is that uh, cachaça makes a lot of things good. It does. So my final question, then, is between St. Paul, Minnesota and Sao Paulo, Brazil... Uh, which is the better St. Paul? Well, this is a tough call, Robin, because as you know, St. Paul is the good twin of the Twin Cities by far. Gorgeous architecture, uh, terrific Caribbean food, a wonderful city in its own right. And if it were in the subtropics and had 30 million Brazilians in it, I think it would be even better. So I kind of have to say, So Paulo, claim though they might that they have the best pizza in the world, it's darling of them to say that, I think So Paulo still maybe claims just by sheer force of personality and numbers, if nothing else. Right. Well, Minnesotans are the Canadians of America, so I'm sure they will take that with, uh, with humility. Mm-hmm. And on that note, let us uh, exit uh, this particularly uh, steamy, cachaça-laden uh, segment and go to a, a soberer one that perhaps smells of... Popcorn. The Best of Asphagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by 
Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Protect this podcast from fatal Fajwada withdrawal alongside such delightful Patreon backers as Michael Bowman, Alexander Shendi, Michael Kewell, Ian Carlson, and James Candelino. The ticket is, is scanned by a machine, not torn by a solentine. The carpet is dark, almost subdued. The walls are taupe. Better to show the posters as they pop. But once more, they've redecorated the cinema hut, Robin, because it is the end of the 90s. We're moving out through the last bit of America's spring break as we sit down in the center seat center aisle for the science fiction cinema essentials volume. And uh, once we've sat down, we don't know where we are. We don't know who we are because we're watching a Spanish film, Abre Los Ojos, directed by the great Alejandro Amenabar in... 1997, and uh, this is a reality science fiction. We, we talk about reality horror a lot. This is reality SF right. of the Philip K. Dickian mold. And in fact, we have already been talking about the theme of the 90s science fiction as we've talked about individual films, but we've yet to fully underline the fact that this is the big trend. It's not about the champion of the system rebelling against it. It's it's not a Messiah story, although we've got a combo Messiah coming up. It's not an invasion from outside, but rather it's a story of identity and reality. We're asking ourselves who we are and what is reality really. And I think that uh, sums up the Gen X experience of uh, sort of being the hangover from the Reagan era and also at the beginning of what was starting to seem a little weird. The Clinton era is when you know, things are prosperous, but also the idea of a central culture where things are normal is beginning to spin out of control. And open your eyes very much, as you said, plays into this. Part of it is just because a lot of this is just because, as you said, there's suddenly a lot of Philip K. Dick adaptations and now things inspired by him. And open your eyes, Spanish film, as you said, is about a womanizing young hotel heir who were nonetheless supposed to find uh, charming and likable who experiences a disfiguring accident after a uh, woman who cares more about him than he cares about her runs him into an abutment wall and then he bitterly pursues the real object of his affection played by penelope cruz but around the edges Parts of his story seem to be weird. Obviously, there's a reason why his story is weird in that there's, it's framed by a device in which he's been charged with murder and is in a psychiatric facility and a shrink is trying to tease out the reality of what happened to him. But Ken, as you suggest, it's all about reality and even classing it as a science fiction essential is a giant spoiler Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not apparent most of the way through that you're watching a science fiction movie, but it, it turns out that you are. Yep. And it's very, it's very dreamlike, very heightened. I think that the American remake by Cameron Crowe, Vanilla Sky starring Tom Cruise. And again, Penelope Cruz, wonderful chance there, but the, the remake kind of fails by trying because Cameron Crowe makes movies about people. He like a fool <laughs> thought he was making a movie about people when he made Vanilla Sky. And I feel like it doesn't work as well because without the sort of wildly surreal, unreal dream 
what's going on quality, it just becomes sort of a a lesser, uh, you know, what done it type. Yeah, movie. the depth that he gives the character is it's actually out of keeping with the revelation that it mm-hmm. reaches at the end. Our next uh, movie is a movie that uh, we will mention, I think, rather than consider essential. And it is a movie that is as visually inventive as anything you're ever going to see, because it is a Luc Besson film from 1997. It's Fifth Element, starring Bruce Willis as a cab driver in the future, and the intriguingly clad Mila Jovovich as Lilu, a mysterious being who drops into his lap in the Fifth Element. And uh, madness, I feel it's safe to to say robin ensues mobius colored madness right. and much dick from chris tucker as right. well yes <laughs> yeah we're mentioning this because uh, it's visuals and it's vibe i think are very memorable but like mm-hmm. a lot of french genre it does not have a third act it does not really <laughs> pay off but we mentioned it yep. something however that is definitely an essential and definitely back to the theme of identity and reality is the truman show uh, directed by peter weir in 1998 this, again, features a character who has an apparently quotidian life, in fact, even more ordinary than the one in Open Your Eyes. Uh, Jim Carrey is just uh, living his life, but something's uh, weird about that. And, of course, once again, it's a spoiler to reveal what, but since people say, I think we're living in the Truman Show now as sort of a shorthand, I think is a well-known enough conceit that we can reveal it. It turns out that you know he is living a completely engineered life as part of a reality show, produced by ed harris in one of his uh, strongest performances and uh laura and linney saying something <laughs> is, is there as well and it's weird to say that laura linney has a stronger than usual performance because she's also great in everything yes but this is a, a, a case where i think we are really in this case pulling the humanity up through the characters really works because the whole notion is that ordinary humans are now so exotic that we have to watch them for entertainment and that ordinariness itself is is going away as you said that we don't have a a normal anymore we feel that going away the truman show is about the attempt to recapture and domesticate it uh, before it goes away and it is you know thoughtful and interesting and good. And uh, Jim Carrey shows up as a good actor in that one instead of as an annoying actor, which he shows up in other films. So it's very much worth seeing. And it is uh, something that, as you say, Robin, has become not just an essential, not just a, a reference point, but a meme. And there's nothing more essential than that in this year of our Lord 2023. The next film in its own way is also about identity. And it also prefigures where uh, science fiction cinema is going to go in terms of its coming self-referentiality. And this is one in which Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, and Alan Rickman, among others, play actors on an old, canceled science fiction television show who they're not getting along with each other. They're resentfully showing up to do personal appearance at a convention when aliens bring them aboard their ship to solve their problem, their fight with these horrible reptilians because they think the show is real. And on one hand is a brilliant commentary on fan culture and media and franchises. It's also very satisfying as a thrilling adventure as well and has great performances from uh, everybody. It's 
speaking of people's best work, clearly Tim Allen's best work. And mm-hmm. so it is uh, both a signal 90s film and it's also telling us where science fiction, uh, unfortunately, is going to soon go. In, in addition to its virtues as a thrilling adventure, as you say, and as a meditation or uh, examination, I would say, not even a meditation of science fiction culture, it's also hilarious throughout. It's a laugh riot and it is a great Star Trek movie. Let's call the baby what it is. It's a Star Trek parody, a loving, affectionate, funny Star Trek parody. And it also turns out to be, some would say, the last good Star Trek movie. And certainly it's the last great Star Trek movie. And it uh, succeeds on those levels. So you can watch it, I think, three times in a row and get three different great movie experiences out of it. And that by itself would make a movie an essential. And certainly in uh, the science fiction cinema hut it uh, stands proud and tall and it's a little unfortunate that the next one stands prouder and taller because it's the matrix by the wachowskis speaking of movies about identity but also robin uh, will be glad to know there's a messiah because it's keanu reeves there's a very clearly signaled right blatantly in the text messiah Uh, right from the jump you could not have had a clearer messiah movie the guys that did the day the earth stood still were like oh man that's a little on the nose (laughs) but uh, there we are keanu reeves is the the seeming schlub in the regular world who of course once he is awakened gnostically is revealed to be the one the savior of this world which it turns out intriguingly in many Gnostic stories, the real world is a crummy world and there is a better world that is revealed to you. The original twist the Matrix does on Gnosticism is the real world is terrible. It's full of goop and monsters and it's disgusting. And it's the pretend world that's yeah. terrific. This is Chicago and Melbourne. <laughs> it's frightening and awful. And why do you want to recognize the truth when the uh, falsehood is much more comfortable as is demonstrated in that classic scene where Joe Pantoliano contemplates his piece of steak on his fork and talks to uh, Neo about it. I was surprised doing the research and, you know, putting all these things in order that the Matrix is 99, that it's that late in the decade, because in retrospect, it seems like the quintessential 90s film. And that's because it's far enough into the 90s that it's picking up on cultural references that have already been established, including there's some visual cues in there uh, from the art of Tim Bradstreet and from Vampire. It's more overt references are also to Hong Kong cinema. Of course, famously, Yen Wen Ping did the fight choreography for that, and they properly trained for six months in order to also make it one of the essential action films of all time. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's not unlike the way that Die Hard is actually made in 1988 when you think of it as the quintessential 80s actioner. And it is because it absorbs the DNA of all those other 80s movies to become the perfect one. Similarly with The Matrix, it's taking not just Hong Kong film, not just science fiction film, not just the nascent cyberpunk uh, movement, which, you know, still Videodrome notwithstanding really hasn't had a great movie about cyberpunking and The Matrix sort of brings that out along with lots of other stuff from the culture, including, as the Wachowskis discovered, I guess you'd say, trans and queer culture that uh, was always present in The Matrix, you know, on many levels, but 
apparently was also part of the core of who are you really and what does society tell you you are? And that was something of a, I guess not a shock because it was a revelation, much like uh, discovering that there's actually weird robot computers that are trying to kill you. Right. Well, I'm shocked to have actually gotten through another decade. And <laughs> starting next week, of course, we'll be into the 21st century. And you and I, Ken, will be relieved and possibly our uh, listeners will as well to know that uh, things will start to get fallow. Yeah. <laughs> we, after fewer, a couple more bangers. Fewer absolute essentials coming. We can skip a whole bunch of years. But that's going to happen next week. And what's going to happen now is a commercial. And then after that commercial... I think I hear a time machine. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send it back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this, every so often, they look at an interesting period of history where uh, there's all sorts of details and cool stuff going on, and uh, they say, we don't have any particular agenda, but if what we're looking at is a war where all sorts of just regular people starve and die and have their lives ruined and their houses set on fire, can you make this less worse? And this time around, they're asking you, Ken, to make the 1636 King Invasion of Joseon, i.e. Korea, less worse. So I guess we're going to start by talking about the invading culture at the time called the Jurchen in the scholarly past, also called the Manchu, these days called the King. Tell us about them and uh, why they decided to invade Korea. Well, I'm going to go farther back, Robin, to the Japanese invasion of Korea in the 1590s, which was stopped not just by the Koreans' uh, invention of the ironclad ship and their own doughty admirals, but by a great deal of help from the Ming Empire of China. Uh, the Ming finally got off the dime and sent some fleets and some uh, armies to chase the Japanese out of Korea. And that resulted in a even stronger reorientation of Korea to Chinese models. Korea had always looked at itself as a Chinese model kingdom. It had a, a you know, 
all the same things that the China had it had in miniature in Korea, but following the rescue, the Ming were seen officially as the big brother and Korea was the little brother. And they used the Ming court calendar, for example, at the Joseon court. So the king of Korea would issue things in the regnal year of a given Ming emperor, not in his own regnal year. That is the degree to which it became very cinified and specifically Mingified. So the trouble with attaching yourself ideologically to the Ming Chinese is they are on the downswing. That was their last hurrah, pretty much knocking the Japanese out of Korea because to their North above the great wall, the Manchu tribes known as the Jurchen are unified under a, uh, you know, another one of those brilliant steppe warlords, a guy named Nurhachi. He conquers a bunch of Mongols. He conquers a bunch of other tribes on the other side, Tungus. And then he starts coming south where all the money is, which is to say China. And we are in a situation where the Jurchen have got all the energy, all the horses, the Ming have, you know, once more fallen fallow, argued amongst themselves. They're getting torn up. And so the Ming say, hey. Once you get money, you start to fight over the money. And then exactly. the guys who have even less money come for you. That is basically how it works. And so the Ming say, hey, little brother, Joseon, let's go, you know, invade the Jurchen and clip their ears a bit and, and set them back on their heels so they stop invading us. And King Guanghe of uh, Joseon says, yeah, we'll get right yeah. on that. Who, us? <laughs> you must be thinking <laughs> of a guy with right? the biggest army in the world, which is you. But uh, it turns out he has to send a detachment. He sends it under a general named Gang Hong Rip. They march north with the uh, Ming and are beaten soundly in 1619. And as a result of that, King Guanghe's enemies, for he has many, for the Korean court is the Joseon court is a nest of snakes that would make the Medici's look like a Swedish community college. Right. And and for backup on that, yeah. see any of the vast corpus of great recent Korean court intrigue movies. If you think court intrigue is parlous in the Western world at this uh, time in history, in the court of Joseon, if you're trying to screw over your fellow advisors, you bow to the king and say, execute him, execute him. And you're not talking about him behind his back. He's right over there. <laughs> and you're arguing for him to be executed. And, and this, in fact, happens in the excellent uh, 2017 film, The Fortress by Wang Dongyak, which we'll find out later in this segment why it's called The Fortress. But it's about this whole incident. Right. Uh, so Guanghei is a reformer. He, you know, is working against the entrenched interests of the, of the barons and the great lords. So that makes it very unpopular. So as a result, when he loses that invasion of uh, the Jurchen, they overthrow him and replace him with a puppet king named King Injo. And he's put in in 1623. And uh, they say, well, you can't have a king who's going to lose to the Jurchen and let the Ming down, our big brothers. How dare you? And so Injo is put on in a, you know, great show of ever more fervid pro-Ming belief, which might have gotten okay, except, as I mentioned, the Jurchen are on the move, and uh, their Khan Hong Taiji promotes himself, rather than just the leader of the Jurchen tribe, to a whole new country that he names Northern Jin. And he says, hey, I'm crowning myself king of Northern Jin. Everyone should send ambassadors to witness my crowning, especially you, Korea. I'm looking at you. Right. And the reason he's looking at them, Ken, right, is that Korea is unfortunately in a strategic position for fights within the territory of what we call China. Right. Yeah. Because if you invade China and you have a hostile Korea at your back, 
it can come across the Yalu and, you know, screw you up, cut off your supply lines. Korea at that time had a very big fleet, and so it could make a great deal of trouble for you in your attempt to invade China. If Korea, on the other hand, is on side, neutral, or, or on fire, on fire, or your, or your subordinate, none of that happens, and you can invade China with your with your rear flank cleared. And so this is part of why, and I think part of it is just ego, Hong Taiji, you know, if you've, if you've made yourself king of the Northern Jin, Robin, you'd like your friends and neighbors to come see. But Injo refuses to do it. He refuses to acknowledge the, the crowning. He tears the invitation up in public and throws it on the ground. Huge loss of face for Hong Taiji. So he invades Korea. Uh, King Injo immediately skips out to Ganghua Island. The Jurchen occupy Korea. They get a peace treaty that says, all right, Joseon, now you're the Northern Jin's little brother. Northern Jin is your big brother. And everything that you used to do for the Ming, you'll do for us. And so they signed that treaty. Northern Jin leave. And you'd think everything is great, except that he's still going to invade the Ming Empire. And Injo is still, I want to, you know, trapped is one way to put it, or foolishly adherent is another way to put it, with this ideological allegiance to the Ming. So they officially have the Northern Jin calendar, but they immediately will follow it with a Ming calendar. So they're trying to get the best of both worlds, sneaking around behind the Northern Jin's right. back. And, and, and Inja was put in there to be a weak puppet. So that right, means yeah. that there's two factions. And, oh, yeah. And, and the factions are... The factions are endlessly dithering over whether or not to prepare for war with the Northern Jin, which everyone knows is coming again. And those factions are the Chokwaranja reprimanding the peace argument and the Chuhwaranja, the advocating peace argument. And I am grotesquely oversimplifying in my defense. Korean historiography also grotesquely oversimplifies this. They've just now begun to look at other firsthand documents from the era and say, there's a lot more than two sides in this argument but let's basically say there's two sides there's the prepare for war now and the let's not do that it would be hard and expensive and so there is a confucian scholar who is very much part of the advocating peace argument partly because he can count and he whenever they, they, they would start the war he would say let's send an ambassador to the ming and see what they say about it let's let's go check things out let's sc- study it more and that keeps pushing it down the road and injo of course can't make any rulings on his own because he's not in power to make rulings so in 1636 after a decade of bickering Hong Taiji gives himself another promotion. He's no longer king. He is now emperor. And he says, I'm Manchu emperor. Once more, looking at you, Joseon, little brother, come to my elevation. Can't be an emperor without an empire. Well, he has the empire of Manchuria, and he's planning to carve off the Ming real soon. And sadly, or whatever, Injo says, nope, didn't hear it. Sorry. You know, new phone, who dis? And uh, Hong Taiji says, well, all right. And you saw this movie the first time, and he invades in December, 9th of December, 1636. The Manchus blitz past the border forts, which is sort of what Injo was counting on holding them. So they could just sort of go between them and take Hansong, which is Seoul now, and surprise King Injo so he can't flee to Ganghua Island in time. So he has to go to the Namhan Mountain Fortress a little bit south of Seoul. It's a very high mountain, very steep sides, hard to besiege. 
But you know what? The Manchus have got to take that fortress if they're going to win the war. So they start besieging it and they start building their, you know, siege works and their big wooden walls around the walls to cut off any chance of a relief force. They start levering cannons into place. It's not looking good. And also uh, what Hong Taiji has in this war that he didn't in the last one was a defecting Ming admiral and the defecting Ming admiral helps him take Ganghua Island and capture the official seals of power, the the court regalia that were there for safekeeping, and all the rest of the princes of King Injo's family, the crown princes in the fortress. So at that point, Injo surrenders. Also, I will point out that during that decade of not preparing for war, they didn't put any food at the Nam Han Mountain Fortress. So when 14,000 troops show up, they have nothing to eat. Right. So you especially don't want to be the farmers in that area because... That's where they're going to find the food. You don't want to be anyone in that area. It's not a good scene. And you certainly don't want to be on top of a mountain in January with no food. And so over the course of that month of, of siege, the two sides are still arguing over how to get a, you know, a, should we make a peace treaty? Should we not make a peace treaty? And uh, eventually the army goes over to the side of let's make a peace treaty. You people are idiots. And that combined with the loss of Ganghua Island basically causes Injo uh, to surrender and once more, the Manchus force a neutralist policy on Korea. They, you know, go, you know, tearing through the place. And they say also, to prove that you're good, you have to take the Ming fortress at the mouth of the Yalu River in Korea. And uh, there's a lot of whining about that, but they're stuck between the rock literally in a hard place. So they kick the Ming out of Korea and that is the uh, first step in the Manchu invasion of Ming China, which by the fact that it becomes Manchu China in about 12 years, you will guess how it went. Yeah, spoilers. So <laughs> that is history as we have it. Now we come yep. to the part where you begin to monkey with the timeline. There is nobody here among the leaders or the generals, the muckety-mucks who I feel a particular huge sympathy for. They are literally all terrible. It is true. But I'm rooting for the ordinary people, the people who get constricted as soldiers or get their farm set on fire, like a little less of that. How do you bring that about? All right. Uh, there are two sort of ways to do it. The first is to join the court and drink a lot of soju and be part of the uh, reprimanding peace argument faction, the side, and probably get killed by King Injo. So I don't want to do that. The other way is if you remember good old Gang Hong Rip, he led that army up into Jurchen territory, got, got himself captured. He was held prisoner and joined the invasion of 1627. And his argument was, let's reinstate King Guanghe. He's not an idiot. He hates everyone who hates you. And he will run Korea correctly. And since he'll depend on us to have restored his power, maybe he won't kick up a snoot when the next bad thing happens. And if that had happened, if they managed to, when they conquered all of Korea, they could have just insisted, we're not giving it back until you overthrow Injo and reinstate Guanghe as king. Now, Guanghe is still stuck between the same rock and the same hard place as Injo, but one, he's not an idiot. Second, he is known, you know, in Korean history as a great diplomat. So if there was a compromise peace to be made, he probably could have made it. And third, he wouldn't have sat around like a doof for a decade, not fortifying the Yalu River. So if you slow the Mongols down as they head for Seoul, head for Hansong, then they're in the Korean mountains with no food, unlike King Injo, or rather exactly like King Injo. And so they are forced 
to maybe make a compromise piece that doesn't give them everything that they want. So I feel like your best chance at slowing down the war, restricting it to the north, or avoiding it entirely is to replace Injo with Guanghei, and your best chance there is to back Gang Hong Rip and maybe talk a Ming admiral into defecting a little bit early to help him out in the 1627 invasion. So as far as game inspiration goes, hopefully at some point we'll have someone who's a deep expert in the subject, uh, take this rich period of Korean history, which is full of conflict and fun and has a great corpus of movies to look to for inspiration and uh, turn it into a role-playing game. And this could be, uh, certainly, there's all sorts of great scenarios for, let's say, some sympathetic characters to, <laughs> to do some things in sure. the corners here. Or I suppose you could, you know, if you don't want to mess up a history that you're not familiar enough with, and I think there's a lot of homework that has to go into mastering this, that you could, I suppose, also take it as inspiration for something happening in a, in a secondary world and just sort of take the tactical and political situation and then put, you know, paladins and druids in it. Or do it in space. That's always a good option, yeah. right? You, you can't go to the, the safe gas giant moon, so you have to flee to the rocky asteroid, and then bad stuff happens. Well, it's sad that bad things are happening on a rocky asteroid, but good things, or at least weird things, will be happening on this podcast again a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astragown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. This podcast is a juicy morsel of steak whose existence you do not wish to question. So join such entirely real backers as... Jesse Lowe. Dreaming Johnny. Josh Borlace. Ludovic. Chavant and Mark Kevin Hall wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.